gentlemen. Welcome wrestling fans worldwide to Knoxville and the great Smoky Mountains for the Ron Fuller Tennessee Studcast. Six feet nine inches tall, 265 pounds. This historic podcast from one of the most respected and successful wrestlers and promoters will follow the footsteps of one of the largest and oldest wrestling families on the planet. The Tennessee Stud, Ron Fuller. Through 93 years and four generations. The Stud has arrived. Old school or new fan, this unique broadcast will educate and captivate as Ron details decades of professional wrestling's growth with truly unforgettable stories. I want those people out there at home to hear the stud. Sit back and enjoy the ride with the Tennessee stud. The Tennessee stud. You will learn that name. You will remember it. And now, the stud here. Please welcome the Tennessee stud, Ron Fuller, and your host, Jeff Maldron. Hey everybody, welcome in once again. It's David Summers hosting another Studcast with the Tennessee stud, Ron Fuller. And again, this week we're sending our best wishes to Jeff Baldron, who we hope is back hosting this Studcast very soon. And we hope he's getting better and very quickly. You have found the only podcast on the planet, which is documenting the real story of professional wrestling. Get ready for 100 years of rich wrestling history as told by the stud. Now, please welcome the originator of the studcast, the man who changed the podcasting world with the super studcast. We step back into time, back into the ring with the Tennessee stud. Our man, Ron Fuller, is with us here this afternoon. Where are we headed today, Ron? Well, you opened it up great. Uh, you know, I mean, you you mentioned we're going to go back 100 years. Well, that's exactly how far we're going back today, as a matter of fact, in the beginning of this one. We're going to go back to 1920 with my yep. granddad. So, uh, yeah, we are, as you say, uh, we come from the oldest family on earth. Yeah. Uh, wrestling family, that is, and the most members and the largest. And we're going to ride today, uh, man, uh, our today's training. And uh, everyone's going to get another lesson in wrestling history today. Uh, one you're only going to be able to find here on the Studcast. I guarantee for this one, for sure. And we're going to go back 100 years to 1920. And we're going to be shooters for the first time. In my grandfather, Roy Welch's first pro wrestling job. And that job is on the valley of a traveling carnival in 1920. Uh, and you're going to learn the connection between wrestling carnivals and carnies and uh, most people will have very little idea what the heck that's all about but we're going to get into it today then we're going to move forward after that's over 56 years back into 1976 the summer of 76 we'll be talking about the card of july 16th 1976 in knoxville we're going to discuss the highlights of the tv that was six days before that on saturday july 10th and uh, i'd like to thank the hill brothers out of knoxville tennessee Richard and Robert, and they have uh, been kind enough. They found some more of these audio sound bites from the original programs in 1976, and they've sent them to me. Some of them were the more, I mean, the very popular sound bites. People really, really enjoyed these. They weren't able to find any for me for a while. Now they've laid their hands on them again. So I'm happy to say we're going to have some of those sound bites in probably the next three studcasts as well, besides this one today. And we're going to return then to the live show in Knoxville, Chill High Park, on Friday the 16th for the results of that card. 
And we're going to take a quick look at Southeastern's return to West Virginia after we stayed out of there for four months. Went there the first time, didn't have great success. Uh, left our TV there for four more months, and we're going to talk about what happened when we went back the second time. Uh, we'll end today, obviously, with the learning tree question. And it's an interesting one about what was the ideal situation for running your best city based on when your TV show aired and when your live event took place in that market. Good question, you know, and, and a very uh, meaningful question for a lot of promotions. They want to have those weekend dates covered. And it's very important as uh, how close your television is to your live event. All right. It sounds like another great one is still arriving. I, I guess we got to start by asking, when are we going to learn about the carnivals and the carnies? What's the deal with that? Well, <laughs> we're going to learn about it right away, Dave. That's where we're going to start today, as a matter of fact. But before we get started in it, I just want to remind fans of what these today training segments are all about. And they're going to take us like today's in all different type of directions. The goal for each of these today's trainings is to educate my audience. I want to make them the most knowledgeable fans in all of wrestling. And I can do that because I'm one of the only one, maybe the only one in the sport who has done all of it. From learning how to shoot, to learning how to work in the ring, to booking, to promoting, to owning the territory, and to establishing and building multiple territories. So I've had some experience with all of it, and uh, and I'm going to be uh, training. You know, I call this today's training because that's what I consider it to be. Today, I'm going to be teaching the lesson to listeners about a subject that they're going to hear no place else in the wrestling podcast in the world. I, I guarantee you that. Today, for the first time, we're going to be shooters. Uh, we've done the promoter thing. Uh, we have done the booker thing. This time, we're going to be shooters, and we're going to travel back a hundred years to 1920 when my grandfather, Roy Welch, uh, gets his first professional wrestling payday. Uh, we're also going to learn the relationship between carnivals and professional wrestlers. And uh, a lot of people don't know there is a relationship there, but it definitely is. And, and uh, we're going to discover as well the importance of this relationship for new wrestlers, especially before there was organized wrestling promotions in most of America, wrestlers that were shooters were wrestling on the ballets and carnivals. Let's begin with the extremely small number of athletes in professional wrestling 100 years ago today. There are a few of them because, obviously, there's few places for them to wrestle. So there weren't a lot of wrestlers around. They couldn't get jobs. There wasn't any places in the early 1900s. Only largest cities in America had any kind of organized wrestling. So well, when that did occur, those matches, it usually was a match between guys like George Hackensmith, Carl Gotch, uh, Jim Londis, Ed Strangler-Lewis, and a few other well-known professional wrestlers. But there weren't a lot of them. And back in those days, obviously, every wrestler that called himself a wrestler was a shooter. They all knew how to wrestle. Uh, and they knew how to hurt you, most of them. For those that didn't know what a shooter is, they were wrestlers that had been trained, and not just to beat their opponent, but if need be, hurt their opponents. Ooh. And uh, my grandfather was trained by a famous shooter in West Texas. His name was Dutch Mantell. Now, I know everybody out there is going, whoa, 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 whoa. Dutch Mantell <laughs> wasn't alive in 1920. Well, I'm not talking about that Dutch Mantell. I'm talking about the original Dutch Mantell. The original Dutch Mantell was a tremendous shooter. He was, he's from out west. He worked a lot around Texas, into New Mexico. 
And uh, I talk about him quite a bit in the first episode of my studcast, uh, number one, the original one with my grandfather, Roy. So, uh, you know, Dutch Mantell is a great friend of mine, actually. The real Dutch, the, the current Dutch Mantell, I'll say, is a personal friend of mine. And he actually worked in Southeastern in 1975. We've got him in some episodes in this past year. So the original Dutch Mantell trained my grandfather for about two years. And then he arranged for Roy to join the carnival and work on what was called the Bally. Uh, this was about the only way to make money in small cities for wrestlers before promoters started organized events. They had organized events at this point in the northeastern part of the country, but out west and Texas and New Mexico and that area, they didn't have any organized events much. So carnivals, after that, later on, they're going to become fairs. So people will go, well, what's a carnival? Well, a carnival is just a fair. That We call it fairs today. Obviously, their attractions were much different than what our fairs offered today, 100 years later. Let's explain what the ballet is. It was basically a platform or a stage. It sat in front of a tent. It was where a ring was set up inside the tent with chairs for the audience. Uh, there's a man on the stage, and uh, he's out there. Usually, Roy told me, usually it had anywhere from two to three wrestlers on the ballet. So there was a man out there. The man on the stage was called the barker or the announcer. So, you know, when I say barker, you can actually think about a barking dog because that's kind of what he is. Right. He's sitting out there drawing people in to see an event, an exhibition that's going to take place in the tent behind him. So it's the first of many words that we're going to talk about today that came from carnival workers and from carnies is a barker. Okay, so Barker is an announcer, kind of, and he's a worker in the carnival that has a great voice. They can hear him from a long distance away, and he tries to draw a crowd over to the wrestling exhibition. And then and they sometimes had boxing exhibitions as well, but uh, in my granddad's case, obviously, he was a wrestler, so he was on the ballet. So these exhibitions, they're entirely different what we're accustomed to today. Wrestlers, back in those days, didn't wrestle against each other. They weren't up there. And the Barker is going to say, hey, this guy's going to wrestle against that guy. They were there to wrestle challengers from the crowd. And uh, back in those days, any man in the large crowd gathered out there in front of the ballet was going to be invited to challenge any of the wrestlers on the stage to match. Now, usually, as my grandfather told me, there would be at least two, as I said before, and sometimes three if it was a larger town uh, standing on the ballet waiting for challengers to step forward. The Barker would announce that any man in the audience could step forward for a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to win $5, <laughs> which was equal to $65 in today's money. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, yeah. So, for $5, uh, he had an opportunity to win $5, you know, and, and then he went on, the Barker went on, and he said, you know, I'm a, obviously, you've got to have the, the opportunity to win $5, and then you can become an idolized hero in this town right here. You know, all your friends and neighbors are standing out here watching. They're going to see you up here and they're going to see you beat one of these wrestlers and you'll be famous. You know, so, <laughs> so uh, that's what the Barker did. And he tried to get them and get everybody riled up. He tried to draw that audience in and uh, and all they had to do to win was just beat one of the wrestlers. And then the crowd obviously began to grow as the Barker did his deal. You know, and he made a big deal out of about, you know, he would pick out people in the audience and he would say, oh, look at you. You're a big guy, man. You don't tell me that you can't get up here and beat one of these little wrestlers. <laughs> and uh, my grandfather wasn't very big. So, you know, they, he wasn't joking, you know. So finally, 
some of the men had stepped forward, you know, and when they did, they'd be invited up on the stage, part of the show, and in front of all their friends and neighbors. And then they were introduced and they were built up by the barker. He would put his hands around their biceps and he'd go, wow, this guy's strong, man. He's going to tear somebody up, right? So the crowd just kept growing and growing, and the process continued. So it might take 30 minutes to draw themselves a big crowd there. Then the last thing Roy said they did is the Barker would say, now, you're the first to challenge one of them. He had the big guy there, and he'd say, and what, you, what I want you to do is just walk over there and shake the hand of the wrestler you want to beat today for these people out here. Roy was the smallest wrestler on the valley. He was only 5'8", about 155 pounds. And uh, he said, uh, obviously, they came to him. <laughs> he, said, hmm. he said it was it was common practice, you know, and even the other wrestlers, they knew what was going to happen because they, they did these shows uh, every night and sometimes three, four times a day. So the Barker, you know, was satisfied with the crowd and he, he invited everybody to come around. And then once the guy goes over and shakes the hand, if he had two or three guys, he'd let them go over and shake hands, too. Sometimes they'd come and shake Roy's hand, too. He had to wrestle two of them out of the three and or that type of stuff. Then he invited them to buy a ticket. The ticket was 25 cents. He said, for a quarter, you can go in and watch this. So, you know, then they people lined up. They paid their quarter, and they went into the tent behind the stage, the valley. So when they got in there, and you might have noticed, when he invited the crowd, uh, he called them marks. <laughs> he didn't say that, but he invited the crowd. Uh, he invited the marks to buy the ticket for 25 cents. And I'm sure everybody noticed the word mark here, right? It kind of described, it's to, to describe the crowd and the challengers. I bet almost everybody out there listening today knows the meaning of that word, or they've heard it used uh, lately in conjunction with wrestling. In the past 20, 30 years, it's become a big word. Uh, it wasn't in the early days, in the kayfabe days, but now it is. And and I also bet that few of them probably know the origin of it. They they don't know where it came from. So it came from the carnies, uh, working for the carnival. And it referred to the people attending that were easily duped into winning all the games that they have at carnivals and fairs, or to beat a real wrestler in this case. That's the way the Carnies made money. They took people that uh, thought that it was going to be easy to win the bear or whatever it was or win this wrestling match, whatever it was, and they found out it wasn't so easy, and they made money off of them. That wasn't all my grandfather learned from the Carnies. They had their own private language. Uh, they used it in the presence of Mark, people that didn't know what was going on, and it enabled them to talk to each other. With a Mark present <laughs> that, that had no idea what you were saying, so they could talk to each other and the mark be standing there and they wouldn't even know. So they would say something like, Dizzo, Yuzo, Nizzo, Wizard, I'm Cezanne, Dizave. I think Snoop Dogg just start, joined the program. I'm not sure <laughs> what just happened. Uh, I, said, I said, do you know what I'm saying, Dave? Okay. <laughs> but I said it in, in Carnage <laughs> language. Okay? Right. So, uh, and that language used to be used often by early wrestlers to protect right. the business back in Roy's day, all through the 20s, 30s, 40s. Uh, it was practically all, all wrestlers knew. Almost all of them knew how to speak Carney into the 1960s and 70s. Uh, guys would talk to each other in the dressing room. If, if a guy came in the dressing room, they didn't know who he was. They kayfaved him by talking in Carney. 
And uh, they just go on and have their conversation. The guy had no idea what they were saying. So let's get back to the wrestling and the shooters here. So my grandfather told me he was always the smallest guy on the ballet, like I said before. He was 19 years old in 1920. He was five feet, eight inches tall. He weighed about 150 pounds. But with the original Dutch Mantel's training, he was obviously the toughest and the best of all the wrestlers on the ballet. It didn't make any difference. He was there for two years on the ballet and the carnival. The wrestlers obviously worked out with each other when they weren't shooting with the marks. And he said that none of them could beat him. And obviously the challengers picked him, like I said, about 90% of the time. So as he put it, when he told me his story, he said, it made me that much tougher because, because he said, I got to beat more marks than any of the other wrestlers did. I just kept getting tougher. So I asked him then if he ever lost, but, you know, because he's out there in Texas and near the Borger, Texas oil fields, they, the carnival worked that area in New Mexico and around uh, Amarillo, Texas. There's a little town there called Borger that was big oil country back in those days. Had huge guys that worked those oil rigs, you know, a lot bigger than he was. And I asked him, did you ever lose? And he said, no. And he said, if I lost, I lost my job. He oh. said, if you got beat one time, he said, you lost your job. And I said, well, why was that? And he said, well, hell, he said, the carnies weren't dumb. He said, if a guy could beat you, they hired him. <laughs> <laughs> he got your job. <laughs> right. And he said, they sent you home and he got on the ballot. <laughs> so, so he was undefeated for two years. He wrestled on the ballot, no telling how many times, three or four times a day, maybe two guys each time, and never lost. And that was a real testament to Dutch Mantel, the guy that had trained him. So, uh, Dave, I'm going to stop here, you know, but I'm not finished with this story. Uh, next week, we're going to be shooters again, and we're going to return to the same time frame 100 years ago. We're going to dig further into the relationship between Dutch Mantell and my grandfather, Roy. Uh, we're going to be riding next week on a shoot with Dutch and Roy to Houston, Texas. And that's where Dutch gets hired to end the wrestling war. One of the few cities in the South that had organized wrestling in 1920 was Houston. They had a wrestling war going and the two promoters decide we're going to end this war by picking our own shooter. We're going to have a shoot, and the winner gets Houston. And that's our story that will come next week. Uh, so I hope you enjoyed the, the little ballet and the carnival story. You know? Well, another fascinating lesson, no doubt, Ron. I'm learning something new about the sport every week. Can we, uh, can we, can we get to it next week? I mean, that, that's pretty cool. So I'm ready to get to it. Where are we going to go from here? Well, we're going to jump ahead 56 years. We're going to July 16, 1976. We're no longer wrestling in the carnival, obviously, but we are wrestling in Chilhowee Park. And Chilhowee Park, oddly enough, is the home of the fair in Knoxville, the carnival, basically. That's where I've been wrestling since 1974, most of my matches in Chilhowee Park in an old carnival facility there in Knoxville. So let's take a look at that Friday night lineup of July 16, 1976. Opening match is Don Wright against the Australian Bill Dundee. Second match was Randy Fargo against a new star in Southeastern making his first appearance at a live event, the great Mephisto. The name alone meant the great devil, and this guy certainly had that evil look and that style. He wore no mask. Uh, his real name was Frankie Kane. 
fans that go way back and have knowledge of really tough guys, Frankie Kane has a reputation of being really somebody solid in wrestling. He had been in one of the original Infernos. He was a partner with Rocky Smith, the Inferno that had the built-up boot. That team was managed by J.C. Dykes. They were one of the best tag teams of all time, in my opinion. Tremendous team. Rocky Smith lived nearby in Kingsport. The guy that uh, Frankie Kane's old partner had retired and lived in Kingsport. And Frankie had a great reputation as a booker. He was a tremendous booker. He was a hell of a heel. And he was a big star almost everywhere he had ever been. So third match of the night was a special six-man tag with Robert Fuller, Jimmy Golden, Mike Stallings. They're taking on Kurt Galvon Steiger and Norvell Austin. There are two main events that night. The first one is a brass knucks match with Ron Wright versus Louis Tillette, managed by Don Carson. The second main event was a 10-round boxing match. Bob Armstrong, managed by me, against Professor Tor Tanaka, managed by General Homer Odell. It was going to be a wild night in the amphitheater, I can tell you that. But before we get the results of that night, let's back up six days earlier, and let's talk about that television on July 10th that's going to promote this card. After the groundbreaking and highly acclaimed opening that every Southeastern TV show opened with, the characters that actually wrestled and moved, and, uh, you know, it was pretty pretty different. It was a... Nobody had that type of opening. It was one of the first that was digitally done. And this one was uh, was shot by uh, Les and myself. You know, this one opened up this program with uh, Les sitting alone in front of the chroma key side of the camera, which we talked about, side of the set. We talked about the set last week and how one side of it, you could uh, place a video on it. And the one described uh, I did for you last week in pretty much detail about that set. So behind him, behind Les, is this 15-foot wide and 10-foot high still shot of Bob Armstrong standing on top rope with Tora Tanaka in the middle of the ring with his back turned to him. Uh, Les reviewed the highlights of the upcoming TV show, which was another great one during rating month. We're trying to pump some really good stuff in there. And then he invited out Bob Armstrong and myself. The standing room only studio crowd was pumped, as always, and they gave us a great ovation. We're going to hear later on how these crowds sound uh, pretty amazing. So we sat with Les, and uh, he asked the director, Bill Kente, to roll the video. The three of us talked over it. Bob went instantly. When he said roll the video, Bob went instantly, jumped off the top rope, nailed Tanaka with a karate chop. That was in slow motion, and then the, this video speeded up to regular speed, and we sat there and talked over the short video of what happened the rest of that match. It showed Homer come into the ring, the referee went down. Homer got in the ring and stomped Bob in the back. Bob had to knock a pin. And then he motioned like he had the week before. Last week, he had done the same thing. He motioned for Norvell Austin, standing back by the dressing room, to come to the ring. And when they did, all three of the heels got on Bob by himself. And uh, when I slid in the ring to help Bob, the studio crowd sounded similar. They were into it. They're watching this video. They're so into it. They sound almost like the 5,000 people in the background sound. So I joined in the the discussion and as the action continued, and uh, Bob and I fought off the three of them. The studio crowd was on their feet, and uh, the action was really, really, it was like being live. It was just like there was a match going on. So Les thanked us for joining him and threw it to the ring announcer, Phil Rainey, and he introduced the first match of the show. 
Phil introduced Tommy Rich, who at this point is a, becoming a pretty big star uh, and a really studio audience fan there in Knoxville. And then uh, after I introduced Tommy, then the studio really erupted when Tor Tanaka and Home Dell entered the studio. And it was a great opening TV match. It tied perfectly in with the opening video segment, which showed Tanaka and, and Bob and uh, what had happened in the match from the night before. Tanaka pretty much destroyed Tommy Rich in a very few minutes. But it's a really great way to open up the TV show, especially in the rating months. So Bob and I returned to the set for the first interview. And Bob had been challenging Tanaka to an arm wrestling contest for several weeks on television. Tanaka and Homer just refused to do it. So this match, Bob was set to box Tanaka for 10 rounds in a boxing match the following Friday. And I was going to manage Bob in that boxing match. Let's explain the reason for the boxing match. And he, we had already watched the video, and it's pretty obvious that in this video, there was a whole lot of karate going on in that match from the night before. And that the Southeastern promoters, they, they wanted to, to get this karate under control here. So they decided the way to do that is put, let's put boxing gloves on those two guys. Right, yeah. <laughs> You can't do much karate with, with boxing gloves, right? So well, it really stopped the, the karate. It was a great idea and a great concept. The studio, they they loved the idea. And then, then they really exploded when Bob explained it. Long before I learned how to wrestle, I boxed. Wow. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. so it's like, wow, Bob's not only a great wrestler, he's a, he's a big-time boxer as well, you know? So, so uh Right now, we're going to do something. We've got a, a short soundbite, and I mentioned it earlier in the show. The gentleman out of Knoxville has sent some more of these actual soundbites from 44 years ago in this 1976 program, this Saturday, July 10th program. Uh, you know, Lou records the program for us, and Lou, if you don't mind, could you please pay for us this piece of remarkable video? I mean, audio. This is not video. I wish it was video. That'd be wonderful. Uh, this one's a short one, but there's some more in this program. So if you can, Lou, just uh, play that audio for us. Happened here a couple, three weeks ago. People have been asking me, do you think you can really put Tanaka's arm down? Well, I've asked the promotion and got permission. We're going to put it all on the table this Friday night. We're going to lay it all down, brother. And before this boxing match ever starts, I'm going to get that big fat arm of yours on the table, and I'm going to put it down, and then I'm going to beat your brains out. Let's do it. All right, Jeez, what a way to, to open a TV show in rating periods. I mean, it's like, wow. I mean, we got them going in the early part of this show, obviously. So the second match segment, it's going to begin with a video from the night before as well, where Robert Fuller and Jimmy Golan had lost their Southeastern belts to the Von Steiger brothers. Uh, it was the first time the two teams had ever wrestled. Uh, Rob and Jimmy and Mike Stallings are going to join Les at the set and uh they get another roaring ovation from the studio crowd. Uh, they watch Norvell Austin in this video come down to the ring, and he cost them their Southeastern Championship belts. And then they're going to watch Stallings come down behind Austin and pitch him into the ring, and all six guys are going to get in that ring, and they're going to have a little brouhaha, man, a little fight there. And uh, then the following Friday night, they're going to return against the Bonsteiger brothers in Austin, the, the Robert, Jimmy, and Stallings. So Les thanked him for joining him. And as another bonus for fans in the rating month, 
sent all three of them to the ring for a very unusual six-man tag. So Rob, Jimmy, and Stallings joined Don Lambert, Bill Dundee, and Norvell Austin in the ring for a six-man tag. So we've opened up with a great video of Bob and Tanaka going at it. We've opened up with Tanaka and Tommy Rich, and Tanaka just decimating Tommy Rich. And now we've got second match, a six-man tag. And that doesn't happen very often on any television program. So we're really cranked in this July month for, for our ratings. So I went back to the set again to join Les for this match and, and to add my comments to the match, the six-man tag. Uh, and since I was going to be the manager next Friday night, and if I hadn't been in action in a long time, it was a good spot for me to sit with Les and talk about this match, especially my brother and my cousins in the match. So we talked some about having to give up the TV championship to Tanaka. When I got hurt, I had to forfeit the Tanaka, the television championship. And then he, he announced that I was going to get a chance. I was going to come back to action the following week anyway, and I was going to get a chance in two weeks to wrestle Tanaka to see if I could win that TV championship back. So at this point, I'll have another actual soundbite from that same show. It is this tag match that we that I'm watching, which was Rob and Jimmy and Stallings. And in this one, I'm talking to Les with Les over the match in the background. And for the listeners out there, pay attention to this crowd noise in this studio during this six-man tag. Yeah, it's pretty amazing, man. Uh, and, and it and it kind of over it overpowers and it overshadows me and Les at the set. You can hardly hear some of what we're saying. So this is a real good taste of what it was like to be a fan in Southeastern back in the day. All right. Uh, 
And uh, there's the Fuller's nomination. The winners to the Golden, Robert Fuller. Ron, we want to thank you for joining us. We hope we see that title defense to buy Tanaka. Again, next week on television, we're going to take a break. We'll be back right after the Immediately following that match, Curtin, Carl Von Steiger, they wore their Southeastern belts to the set. They were followed by Norvell Austin, and the studio obviously exploded in booze this time. Uh, so, you know, we're putting Rob, Jimmy, and Stallings, and the two Von Steigers and Norvell Austin all in the same segment. So, you know, fans saw the baby faces. Now they see the heels. It was another segment that tied the opponents together. And this is going to become a standard for TV, for the Southeastern TV shows that I produced back in those days. And I'm, as a booker, I'm beginning to learn how to angle and program several guys against each other on the same card. And uh, Southeastern grows. There are going to be sometimes on the regular cards on Friday night where five or six feuds will be going on in one event, which is really, really different for wrestling back in those days. Most, most territories, had two top matches, and the rest of the guys didn't mean anything. What happens when you start angling everybody and programming everybody? Every match means something. And the events are just, they're miraculous. I mean, they're unbelievable because fans are in it all night long. And the TV is going to become, each one of the four segments of the show are going to consistently highlight their own angle. So, you know, I'm starting to get into it uh, at this point. First to match was me and Bob watching a video. It's followed by Tanaka, who's in the video, and we're wrestling against Tanaka. We come back to the interview. This one has everybody that's involved in another one of the matches from the next week. It's going to be what happens with Southeastern. The personality profile comes next. And it was done. This one was done live in Studio B so that the fans could be a part of it in the adjoining studio. And this one was the introduction of a new star heel that at this point I had never seen work. And I hate to say that I hired a guy sight unseen, but it's because I heard, heard great things about him. This guy was appearing for Southeastern on his first time. And Les did a great job of interviewing him. Uh, the great Mephisto. Mephisto was strange looking. <laughs> he was really strange. He was a different looking guy. Scary in a way. It was crazy how fans got into him. He scared them. He wore a turban. He was kind of Arabic looking. He had a beard that was trimmed. He had dark black hair. He had skin that was dark as well. Uh, he wore these silky cloth type robes that just kind of flowed as he entered into the ring. And as he left, he had a style and a flair to him that fans had never seen before. Right. Uh, so as he entered Studio B to do this, this personality profile, the fans just went silent. You know, they, they, they were getting their first look at the great Mephisto. And, mm -hmm. and then he spoke with this Arabic accent and he professed to be the devil himself. He had no problem saying it, you know, <laughs> right there on the personality profile. I am the devil, by yeah. gosh. Look at me, you know. So uh, Les highlighted his tremendous reputation all over the world. And Frankie Kane had a tremendous reputation all over the world. Fans in the studio were eerily silent, as if they couldn't tell what this guy was all about. And, man, I loved that silence sitting up there in the control room. Uh, you know, it told me the fans were intrigued by this guy. They were almost scared of this guy the very first time they saw it. By the time it was over, the great Mephisto was over, by God. I mean, 
I was like, wow, man, this guy's got over here in five minutes. So at the end of this very effective personality profile, uh, Mephisto is going to go straight into the main studio and he's going to enter the ring and he's going to wrestle against an opponent named DeBoy Brunson, who's a kind of a local guy in Knoxville who had wrestled all different types, but he's never wrestled anybody like Frankie K. Mephisto, he didn't even wait for his entire introduction. He, you know, they introduced DeVoy Brunson, but Mephisto, he just tore into Brunson before he, his name was even announced. And I immediately started exhibiting these moves that even I had never seen before. He was doing some really strange stuff. And at one point, he got behind DeVoy Brunson. And DeVoy Brunson was on his knees, kind of like in a begging position. And uh, Frankie Kane's over the top of him, Mephisto's over top of him, and he yanks his head back, and he looked down at his face, and he took his fingers, his, his pointer finger and the middle finger, and he stuffed them into the top of his eyelids. And then he pulled his head back really far, and the cameras are really on this tight, and until it seemed like that you could see Brunson's eyes protruding from the sockets, man, I was like, wow, look, at he's, he's going to pop his eyes out, right? Yeah. And uh, the camera operators, like I said, were great on these TV programs. Uh, we had a great production crew, and they got this awesome shot of this. And then uh, Brunson screamed, man, and he struggled, man, trying to get away. And Mephisto just stared up in the lights as if he was in some kind of trance. He's got the fingers dug into his eyes. And then when he finally released Brunson, Brunson fell on his stomach. Mephisto just dropped down on his back. He grabbed his chin and he reared back until it looked like he was going to break Brunson's back. <laughs> and it's like, wow, Brunson is just screaming, I give, I give. He's screaming so loud that you could hear it on Les's microphone 30 feet away. You could hear him giving up. And then fans, they were silent as they could be. They had just witnessed for the first time Mephisto's camel clutch. I mean. This guy really got over in one television. It was amazing. Studio never made a sound from the time the match started until it ended. Not even when it was over and the referee raised Mephisto's hand. The ref and the two wrestlers carried Brunson out of there. Two wrestlers came to the ring. They carried Brunson away. And uh, the entire profile and match, to me and to the fans in the studio, and I know it was the same thing with the fans out there watching home. It was hypnotizing. It was like, wow, this guy is unbelievable. It, it really sounds like this guy is just absolutely crazy. So I think the fans were uh, rightfully shocked, no doubt. Yes, that's exactly what, I, you know, and uh, I'd found something special there. What I realized that, you know, and I'd found what every booker and every wrestling owner in the world was looking for. I'd found instant money, man, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Basically, it's instant money, or as Jim Barnett would say, I found money, money, money. <laughs> and it was like, wow, this guy is going to be over. He's going to draw big time bucks. No doubt. So, what happens next, Rod? Well, two minute interview. And uh, this one began with an enraged audience. As soon as an irate General Homer of Dale and Professor Tanaka appeared, the audience just started on them right away. They were both already very upset about this upcoming TV title championship match to, with me in two weeks and uh, this arm wrestling contest that Bob Armstrong's been trying to get. Now they're trying to make Tanaka arm wrestling on Friday night. And then Tanaka's got to wear boxing gloves. And Tanaka was even. Tanaka, who had been very silent, Tanaka was more vocal than 
than Homer was. He was like crazy out there. So, and again, thank goodness, we've got the soundbite from this actual interview. It's another great example of a studio gone wild. I mean, the studio is just crazy. You're going to have trouble hearing some of this. And with Les, just bear in mind, this is Les, Homer O'Dell, and Tanaka trying to talk and scream above the roar of this crowd. Let's hear it. That any time in the near future that Bob Armstrong and Curtis Naka enter a wrestling ring, there must be some form of Ron, that, I mean, you're right. That studio crowd was absolutely crazy. How can a couple of hundred fans make that much noise? And, and literally, it was only about 200 fans in, in a wrestling crowd like that, in, in, a, in a TV crowd. Yeah, TV studio only holds about 200 people. And, you know, it's easy, Dave, if they're really into what's happening. Yeah. And they were really into it at this point in Southeastern wrestling. I mean, we really had them. We had some great talent and we had some storylines and we had everything going. We had angles. We programmed these guys. We were doing really good business because we were doing it right. And this show wasn't over yet. You know, the TV closed with Louis Tillette and he's managed by Don Carson against Rocky Smith. The guy I mentioned earlier that was partners with the great Mephisto as the Infernos. Managed by J.C. Dykes. And Rocky Smith is uh, another one of those famous infernos. He's the one that had the built-up boot that they won most of their matches with. So Tillette was scheduled next Friday night to meet Ron Wright in a brass knucks match. So Tillette comes with the ring with his fist taped, as if he's ready to have a brass knucks match on TV. So Rocky Smith is the opponent, and Rocky starts complaining to the referee, whoa, wait a minute, man, look at his fist there. He, you, he can't tape his fist. This is a regular wrestling match. So, uh, you know, they're arguing a little bit about it, what they're going to do, and the rest is asking Carson and Tillette about, uh, you know, what's going on here, guys? And then Carson, being pretty sharp as old Don was, he grabbed the ref as his attention, and Tillette attacked Rocky Smith. Well, the ref started ringing bell, but he didn't start to ring the bell to start the match. He rang the bell to stop the match. He was like, wait a minute here. This ain't right. <laughs> but it didn't stop. Louis just went on with it. I mean, he nailed right away Rocky Smith, and within a couple of minutes, Rocky was pretty darn bloody, man. It was it was nasty. So Ron Wright arrived in the studio from out of nowhere, and he went in the ring as the crowd exploded. And Ron Wright and this guy, Rocky Smith, are very close personal friends, uh, great friends of each other. They're both from the same town up there in the Tri-Cities part of Tennessee. So. Uh, I'm sure Ron Wright went in there uh, really wanting to do something to help Rocky. Tillette didn't see him, and uh, he was still working on Smith, and 
So Ron sneaked in behind him, and boy, before he nailed him, he dug down in his pocket and he brought out the old chisel. My God, boy, the fans really went crazy then. It was like, oh boy, we're going to get it. And then Carson grabbed Tillette and he jerked him out of the ring before Wright could get to him with a chisel. But that studio was really electric. They had seen everything during this show. After the interview with Ron Wright and then uh, in Carson, with Carson and Tillette in separate studios, Lester announced the next week on TV, Bob Armstrong's going to wrestle. Don Carson's going to wrestle. The Southeastern Tag Champions are going to be defending their belts on the show. And then in two weeks, I'm going to be coming back into the ring to take on Tanaka for the Southeastern TV Championship. Not only did we have a great ratings period TV that day, we ensured ourselves another big audience the next two weeks, which is going to be all the way through the end of the July rating period. We're going to crank them up. What another incredible TV show, Rod. It's a great spot for a break. We'll take one right now, and we'll come back with more in moments on this Studcast. That's coming up. Super Studcast number 30 has a little bit of everything. In the three-plus hours, you'll ride with Cactus Jack on trips with old-school wrestlers in the stud stable. Experience the kendo stick to Von Erich's Texas territory. Losing part of an ear, hell in a cell, much more. And oddly enough, laughing about it all at tnstud.com or patreon.com slash studcast. Then pay homage to one of the greats that recently passed. Johnny Walker, Mr. Wrestling 2. Learn how an unsuccessful wrestler turned his career around by simply putting on a mask. Hear the love and respect given this man by former President Jimmy Carter and his mother Lillian. Bob Armstrong, Bill Watts, Mr. Olympia Jerry Stubbs, and his close friend and confidant, referee Bobby Simmons, who rode thousands of miles with him. Number 30 is a stud cast that should not be missed. If you're a wrestling fan or not, at tnstud.com or patreon.com slash studcast, only $2.99. Saddle up for laughs and love. Hey, we're back with another stud cast with Tennessee stud Ron Fuller. It's David Summers co-hosting this afternoon. Where are we riding to now, Ron? What's going on? Well, we're going to quickly recap the July 16th card. What happened on that night? We talked about the card earlier in the show. We talked about the television promoting it just before the break. And we're going to finish up by talking about July 16th and what actually happened on that card. And then we're going to follow that up if we've got the time. With uh, We're going to talk a little bit about West Virginia. We're going to head back to West Virginia. So the opening match on Friday, July 16th was a good one. Don Wright. Got a win, an equality win, I call it that, over Bill Dundee, because at this point, Bill Dundee is a pretty darn good little working heel. And uh, Don Wright got a win over him. That's good for Don Wright. He needed it. He didn't wrestle very often at this point, but uh, it was great for him to get a win like that. The great Mephisto made his first appearance in the amphitheater against Randy Fargo. And I've said a couple of times before, Randy Fargo is no relation to Don or Jackie Fargo. Just happens to have the last name. Boy, I tell you, the great Mephisto, Frankie Kane, he he had another tremendous, he made a fantastic impression on the fans in this one, too, just like he had on TV. He used some of the same techniques, in fact, he did days earlier on the TV. But he added some more unusual moves in this short match. Another short match didn't go long. He pretty much annihilated Randy Fargo the same way he had done to Boy Brunson six days earlier on TV. Fargo had to be stretchered from the ring. 
And uh, he, he never wrestled again in Southeastern. It was his last match ever in Southeastern wrestling. The six-man tag was next. Robert Fuller, Jimmy Golden, Mike Stallings taking on Kurt and Carl Von Steiger and Novell Austin. It was a great match. With Rob getting the win over Novell Austin, he used the Fuller leg lock to get the win. The first of the two main events was next. It was a brass knucks rules match between Ron Wright and Louis Tillette, and Louis going to be managed by Don Carson. So Carson and Tillette, who had his fist taped again, obviously, that's what the brass knucks match was already all about. Carson and Tillette went to the ring first. And boy, the amphitheater was ready for them, man. They, there was a big explosion of booze. Ron Wright, with his taped fist, brought Robert, my brother, down to manage him. Carson, as he had done two weeks before when Ron brought his brother Don Wright down to manage him, forced the referee and the announcer to make Robert prove that he had a proper license to manage from the Tennessee Athletic Commission. Right. Uh, and uh, two weeks ago, that failed for Don. Don said, to, you know, make sure Don Wright's got the proper license. And Don Wright did have the proper license. Well, Rob didn't have the license. So, you know, Carson then, boy, made a big deal. He said, y'all got to get him out of here. Get Robert Fuller out of here. So Rob was sent back toward the dressing room and wasn't allowed to be at ringside. So by then, the entire crowd, and you know Carson well enough, Dave, to know that Carson had him so mad, and Tillette was so mad that uh, they were just delivered. The crowd was like, oh, man, I can't believe this. And uh, so old Ron Wright, being the heel he was, while all this commotion's going on and they're trying to get Rob back to the dress room and Carson is screaming at him back and forth, old Ron Wright sneaked up on Tillette. And boy, he, he let him have it. So fans really, all of a sudden, they got, uh, you know, once Ron Wright pearled Harbor to Tillette, they forgot all about Rob and Carson's little beast, and they got into the match right away. Fans started loving that match right from the very beginning of it. Several times during that match, Carson interfered. In one way or another, he interfered. Uh, Louis was smart. Louis was an old, great old heel, too. And uh, he actually drew first blood on Ron Wright. He had Wright bleeding. And uh, Carson continued to punish Wright. And as Tillette would often draw the ref's attention, Louis was a smart heel. He got the ref to go with him. And Carson would get his shot in on Wright. And uh, finally, Ron pulled out the old chisel, man, and everybody in the place stood up. Louis it didn't take long for Louis to be a pretty much a bloody mess, and the park was in sheer pandemonium at that point. I mean, they they were getting to see the good old Tennessee dog whooping, you know. <laughs> it was they were rocking and rolling there, and the brass knucks rules very similar to Texas death match rules. Uh, several times, Ron Ron Wright got the pinfall, but to let regained his feet after the thirty second rest period, and then there was a ten count. Tillette kept getting back on his feet and avoiding losing the match. So finally, Carson picked his spot. Ron Wright and the referee collided. I think he had a headlock on Tillette, and Tillette just shot him right into the ref. And uh, Tillette was already bleeding and really hurt, and he went down on his face. So Carson just pretty boldly just climbed up in the ring. The referee's down, and (laughs) and Ron Wright's down. And, well, hell, you know, I'm going to do my thing. So uh, (laughs) Bob's in the back the dressing room and he watches and he sees Carson come in the ring. So he starts running down to the ring on his way down to the ring. He just reaches out. There's a chair sitting for a timekeeper by the, that rang the bell by the side of the ring. Rob reached down and grabbed that steel chair and he slid in the ring behind Carson and Carson didn't see him. Carson didn't know he was there. 
uh, Ron Wright's trying to get to his feet, and Carson started loading his black glove. Referee's down on his face. Nobody's going to see what he's going to do. And the fans are just like, wow, no, we see it coming. You know, Wright's about to get up to where Carson's going to plaster him, and uh, the crowd's just going crazy. And then Carson uh, rears back with the big right hand, and Rob just blasted him from behind over the head with that steel chair over his blonde hair. And Carson went down face first, and the crowd popped. It was like, wow, <laughs> look at this, man. The Carson ain't going to get his way. And uh, you could have heard that pop in Nashville, man. They, and they really popped. And Tillette was rising about the same time. And Robert just let him have it, too, with the chair. Bam, he went back down again face first. Another big pop. And he left the ring. Ron Wright fell on Tillette. And the referee crawled over there, and he counted Tillette out. They had the 30-second rest period. And then uh, they started counting, and uh, Tillette never got up. And neither did Carson. Carson and Toledo both laying face first on the mat. And Rob goes sliding in the ring and raises Ron's hand. And boy, what a damn. It was great. Those fans were just so into that. It was a fabulous little end of that match. Then we got to the last last match of the day. The 10-round boxing match between Tor Tanaka, managed by Homer, against Bob Armstrong, managed by me. Uh, there was supposed to be an arm wrestling contest to take place first before the boxing started. And Tanaka came down to the ring and and he started, uh, <laughs> you know, Tanaka had found like on the Saturday before he had started ranting, and but you couldn't understand the word he was saying. And he wasn't even <laughs> speaking Japanese. It was like, what is he saying, you know? Right. And right. so Tanaka gets the microphone, and they brought the table in, and they're going to start the arm wrestling contest, and Bob's all sitting down there. And Tanaka got the microphone, and he started ranting in this unknown language, and the crowd went crazy. They just loved it. Like, they could tell he was angry. He didn't want to do it. And they enjoyed it even more when Homer took the microphone from Tanaka, and he started screaming that the match, this ain't fair. You know, I mean, uh. What's he got to have an arm wrestling match with for? You know, what does that prove? And then my man Tanaka don't know nothing about boxing. And Bob Armstrong's been a boxer. I mean, what, you know, he had a bitch. You know, he had a genuine bitch, you know. Right. And uh, so they just left the ring. <laughs> they went back to the dresser room. Bob's sitting there at the table ready to do the arm wrestling deal. And the both of them say, we're leaving. We're not doing anything. We're not wrestling at all. So Homer takes Tanaka back to the dressing room. Then the booze that was going on turned to rage from the crowd. They were like, oh, wait a minute. Then we're not going to wrestle at all. So there was a lot of delay. And there was a lot of confusion down at ringside. And Les finally came down to the ring. And he got the microphone. And he announced that he had spoken to the Southeastern officials and that Homer and Tanaka had two minutes to get back into the ring and have the boxing match. Well, the crowd loved that. They popped, you know, God, oh, yeah, we're going to see it. And then he added, which was even better, he goes, and if they don't, Southeastern Wrestling is going to take Tanaka's championships away, and they're going to ban both him and Homer Odell from Southeastern Wrestling forever. The crowd exploded then. It's like, heck, yeah, man. <laughs> they didn't care if it came back or not. And then Homer and Tanaka, they came running out of the dressing room. They ran down there, and they had to the gloves and Homer started putting the gloves on Tanaka and I put the gloves on on Bob and all of a sudden we're going to have this boxing match. 
this boxing match was great if you was a Bob Armstrong fan. <laughs> I mean, Tanaka's big and bulky, and, uh, you know, you could tell he'd never boxed in his life, and Bob danced and bobbed and weaved, and, I mean, he looked like a professional boxer. He looked like Muhammad Ali, man. He was just all over him, bam, bam, bam. He knocked Tanaka down in every one of the first five rounds. Tanaka got up. He managed to get up, but he knocked him down in, in all of the first five rounds. And after the fifth round during the rest period, Homer was over there. You could see he was busy doing something with Tanaka in the corner. He wasn't trying to dry him off like uh, you know you normally do with a towel. It looked like he had his towel over Tanaka's hands. So when they came out for the sixth round, Tanaka just reached down. He pulled his gloves off. Now, Bob still got his gloves on. And Tanaka then started to attack Bob, and he started using karate. And Bob was pretty much defenseless. So the referee, seeing that, just started ringing the bell. He's going to disqualify Tanaka and Odell. But, you know, Homer did the same thing he'd done the week before. He got up there and he waved Norvell Austin to come down to the ring again. So Austin came running down. And as soon as Austin came, I saw him coming. I just jumped out and I met him on the concrete out there. And I grabbed him and just kept him running. I posted him in one of those steel posts on the ring. So he never got in the ring. (laughs) And then Homer and Tanaka, they were both just pounding the hell out of Bob inside the ring. And he still had his boxing gloves on. He's pretty defenseless. He couldn't really do anything. So I rolled in the ring. I grabbed Homer and I threw him over the top rope. And he landed his big fat butt on top of Austin. That was a nice tale for Austin. He was really, he, he was sad he came down. And it was just me and Tanaka at that point. And there was the guy that had dislocated my shoulder and put me out two months earlier. I tore into him and the crowd just went crazy. They, they loved that. I ended up putting the fuller light leg lock on him. And uh, Bob was still down. Uh, Norvell and Homer kind of rolled into the ring and they stomped me off the fuller leg lock. And uh, Bob got up on his feet. He got his gloves off. And all of a sudden, you know, we, we did the best we could two against the three of them, and they hit the floor, hit the concrete. And Tanaka limped out of there. It was a good thing for me. I got a little bit of uh, that revenge I needed. Man, what a night. And I know this facility would be close to holding maybe as many as 6,000. How many do you think you did have? I think the figure was a little over 5,500. That's pretty darn close. I mean, and we were continuing to grow each week. Every week seemed to get better. That week, it also included, as I mentioned earlier, we went back to Bluefield, West Virginia on Monday of that week, July 12th. And we had drawn there in March of 76. The first time we ever went there, television wasn't over. uh, None of the wrestlers were over. Mm -hmm. We drew just about a thousand people the first time we were there in March of 76. So we go back three months later, and there's more than 3,000 this time. Everything. It seemed like everything was catching on fire. That's uh, that's incredible stuff right there, Ryan. I hate to end on this one, but I think it's it's about time to grab that cold drink and we'll take a seat under the learning tree again. What is today's question once again? Today's learning tree question comes from a gentleman named Fred Edelman. And uh, Fred asked, what was the ideal situation for when TV aired and your live house shows ran, in your opinion? So this is one question that to me has two answers to it. One answer explains the ideal situation between what day your TV airs and the day your live events air in that, off that television. And the second question, the one he didn't ask, is how difficult is it for you as a promoter 
to make that change of your live event to put it into a big time night Saturday or Sunday that's close to that TV, even if you want to. So let's answer the first question about what was the ideal situation for your TV airing and your live events being held close to that same time frame. So obviously the best nights of the week for entertainment and sports in theaters, in uh, anything that they sell tickets to, is Friday or Saturday night. Ideally, that ought to be the nights that you save for your biggest and your best cities to have live events on those nights. But the problem is that buildings are hard to schedule on Friday and Saturday nights because everybody wants Friday and Saturday night. And when you go to doing wrestling 52 nights a week, that means they have to give up that building for all events on that night. So it's a problem to get those Friday and Saturday nights. So every other night of the week is followed by, obviously, a work day or a school day the next day. And it limits the fans because they got to get up early the next morning and go to work. So obviously, it makes it hard to draw fans that want to come on weeknights because it keeps them up too late. So the one thing about this answer that is constant is the fact that every TV wrestling show in the country from the time the television was invented through the 1980s, for sure, was always on a Saturday and usually on a Saturday afternoon. Every territory had stations in different cities that aired their shows at different times, but they all aired on Saturdays. So I had a wrestling show. That, you know, I had shows on different stations, and the airtime was from 10 a.m. in the morning to sometimes some stations midnight on Saturday nights, which was Birmingham. Uh, in the 1980s. So Saturdays being the day that almost every station wanted to air your show left you no other choice uh, in the day that you had your live event. The only thing that could be adjusted was the day you scheduled your live events. In big territories like Vince Seniors in the Northeast, it didn't make any difference because he wasn't wrestling in cities every week. He was going to cities irregularly. Didn't make any difference what night. He didn't go back to cities weekly like we did in the South. He had big markets and he had a big territory that had a lot of big cities, and he could do that. In the South, territories were smaller. They didn't have as many big cities, and you were really hard-pressed to make that happen. So it was just a different deal being in the territories than it was for somebody up there in the Northeast. So let's have a look at the tale of two territories, I'm going to call this, southeastern Knoxville and southeastern Pensacola. Southeastern Knoxville had only one major city, Knoxville. That was it. And that city, as far as I know, had always run on Friday night. So the TV always ran on Saturday. So ideally, you want your market to have its TV as close to the same day as the matches they're going to run their live event. That's the ideal situation. But I got to thinking about, I wanted to change Knoxville night to Saturday. But I got concerned that the major change like that could hurt business. Uh, you know, fans are creatures of habit. And in that part of the country, uh, a lot of them would have thought, hey, don't mess with my wrestling night. You know, that's Friday. What do you mean to change it to Saturday? Right. Yeah. So I was afraid I'd actually lose crowd. You know, I might lose people by changing it to Saturday. So I managed to close that time frame between the air and the TV and the live event in the winter in Knoxville because I ran on Sunday afternoons. You know, and I moved a live event but to that afternoon, to Sunday afternoon, which meant it was the next day. And it made it only one day away from the airing of the TV show. In fact, the TV show aired at 2 o'clock 
and the matches are going to be at three o'clock on Sunday afternoon the following day instead of the six days later on Friday. That schedule began each year right after Christmas, and I continued it until the winter was over, and then I had to go back to the Friday night. It worked great on Sundays for two reasons. Fans had the TV and the card and were still fresh in their memories from the day before. It also worked on Sunday because the live event was in the afternoon. Most businesses are closed, fans were off, and they were able to attend. So Knoxville, because it was in the mountains, got a lot of snow in the winter, uh, more than any other part of the state of Tennessee by far. And it also made it easier running on Sunday afternoon for poor drivers in the south to deal with that snow (laughs) at night. You know, driving in the snow at night is bad enough for people in the south to drive in the snow, much less if it's at night. Yeah. Because at night, the roads freeze back over again. You got the ice problem when you drive. Uh, now, fans up north, I'm sure you're laughing at this. But believe me, you know, Southerners are just, they're just downright scared to drive in the snow. It's yeah. just a matter of fact. So what did I do for those Saturday nights to take advantage of that second great night of the week? I had Knoxville. I was going to leave on Friday. I ran it on Sunday afternoons. So I had this Saturday night. I only had one other major city that I was running weekly, which was Johnson City. It was up there in the Tri-Cities part, the northeastern part of Tennessee. The building was too small. Uh, We sold it out on Tuesday night. So I couldn't imagine how many people we'd turn away on Saturday nights. We were turning people away on Tuesday. So it had been a ridiculous thing. It had been stupid for me to waste a Saturday on a building that I could put fewer people in than some of my other buildings I had. So I decided to run Harlan, Kentucky every other Saturday night. It had a high school gym that held at least a thousand more fans than the Johnson City building could hold. And uh, alternating Saturdays, we ran close to Knoxville in Marstown, Tennessee. And the reason it was close and the reason I liked it is, is it got the boys home early. And I always took into consideration the reputation of this territory that I was building. And the reputation we were getting is we had short trips and guys would make big money and they'd be home by midnight every night. So this fit perfectly into my plan. Uh, you know, I wanted guys to talk about the, the how the great a territory it is and that you're not traveling like in most territories back in those time frame. You were doing 2,000 a week. We were doing 300 miles a week. So the building was small in Marstown, but they had a baseball stadium. And in the summer, you could run in the baseball stadium. It held 4,000 people. It was a big stadium. So that worked good. So let's look at the larger of the two territories. Let's look at the southeastern Pensacola territory. So it's Friday night uh, city had always been Dothan. And uh, when I bought Gulf Coast Wrestling from uh, the Fields Brothers, Dothan was the best town. Dothan was a good town. Uh, yes. the, the Saturday night, they ran a little small city outside of Dothan called New Brockton, Alabama. So, <laughs> my yeah, you know, it's a small little tiny place. It's like, wait a minute. Now you just ran Dothan and now you're going to run 40 miles away in a little small building in a little small town. Yeah. So right away, when I bought the territory. I changed that. New Brockton's <laughs> population back then was probably 2,000 or less people. Yeah. So what are you going to do your Saturday night? You got your best night of the week and right. you're going to run in a town that's got 2000 people. So I changed that right away. You know, I, I started running spot shows. I had to run spot shows. I couldn't get the buildings in any of the other major cities every Saturday night, like I would have wanted to do. So I had to run some spot shows. 
So then it started making me wonder about running Dothan on a Saturday. Like, why did nobody ever try to run Dothan on a Saturday? So that kind of stuck my neck out, and I changed the night from Dothan from Friday to Saturday. The TV ran on Saturday afternoon from 5 o'clock to 6 o'clock. And, uh, you know, when something happened on TV, and it, it practically did every TV, believe me, the live event started two hours after the TV. I mean, angles that took place on that TV on Saturday afternoon put 5,000 roaring fans in that farm center every Saturday night. It was unbelievable. I mean, Dothan went from a great town to a fantastic town once we moved it from Friday to Saturday. Uh, Friday then became the big spot show nights for me in bigger cities like Panama City that had a brand new civic center. So on Friday night, which was another good drawing night, we would go to these big spot show cities like Panama that had the big civic center. And uh, weekends became hugely profitable for the Southeastern Company in Pensacola. So it brings us back to a major problem with changing the night for a regularly run city. The availability of larger buildings every Saturday night of the year is just impossible to come by. You're not going to get it. So I had to do the best I could with what I had available. And, uh, and we did our best to bring quality wrestling to fans throughout the Southeastern Continental Territory for 14 years straight. No matter what day it was, we did our best to bring them the best they could ever see. Well, there you have it. Another great one, Stud. Absolutely. And you can like the Ron Fuller, the Tennessee Stud page and become friends with a legend on Facebook. To find out more info on Ron's new novel called Brutus on Facebook, like the author Ron Fuller Welch page. Updates will appear there regularly. At Twitter, you'll find him at at Ron Fuller Welch. Super Studcast number 30, part one, is with Mick Foley. And part two is a tribute to Johnny Walker, Mr. Wrestling 2, with Bob Armstrong, Bill Watts, Jerry Stubbs, Mr. Olympia, and others. Where are we riding next week, Ron? Well, we're returning to Texas. Like I said earlier in the show, uh, this time we're about two years later, 1922. We're going back as shooters, just like we did in this one, in the, in the beginning of this one with our uh, today's training. And uh, we're going to take that ride with the legendary Dutch Mantel and my grandfather, Roy, to Houston, Texas from Amarillo. And this one ends the first wrestling war in the South. And then we're going to, going to return to late July of 1976, uh, when Southeastern's beginning really to take off. My brother, Robert, is going to take on Don Carson in a lose-relief Southeastern match that's going to begin the run of record crowds that's going to lead us to Terry Funk and the NWA world title match in October of 1976. Learning tree questions are, how did you as a wrestler protect your image, but still do jobs for other promoters that demanded it? Also, how did you handle wrestlers that did not want to do jobs? <laughs> I look forward to that. One. <laughs> I look forward to handling those two. So, uh, as always, I want to thank all the listeners out there as, as the Studcast growth just takes off. It, it, I mean, it's amazing what's happening here in the last uh, six, eight weeks with uh, the number of listeners. And thank you all so much for being here. And uh, the growth in the Studcast has taken off just like Southeastern took off in 1976. And welcome to all our new fans each week. And take care of yourselves and others. And uh, may God bless us all. 
Another great one, Ron. This is David Summers thanking you for joining us today and reminding you that Ron Fuller's Studcast is a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. Thanks for joining us today for this historic Studcast. The true story continues next week. So full Nelson, your friends, and point them in our direction for another ride with the Tennessee Stud. This is David Summers saying so long from the Great Smoky Mountains.